Thank you for listening to Theo Now. This episode, episode number three with Dr. William McDonald, um, head of religion and philosophy at Tennessee Wesleyan University in Athens, Tennessee, was recorded in the midst of COVID in the summer of 2020. Um, so this is coming out a little bit late, just like my last episode. Um, but I wanted to let you know and, and apologize for some of the sound during this episode. Uh, we were recording during the summer, like I said, during sweltering heat, a crazy heat wave there in East Tennessee. And uh, we were meeting in the oldest building on campus of Tennessee Wesleyan University. Uh, I travel around to meet with my interviewees uh, during this time. And um, it was just incredibly hot. And unfortunately, the only room we were able to meet in and have this discussion was in a room that had a window air conditioning unit, and it was just running full blast the entire time. I've done what I could uh, to uh, help the audio, but if it sounds a little funny, that's why. Uh, thanks again for listening. Let's begin. Welcome to Theo Now. The church has always taught that there's common ground, even among non-Christian religions. There are seeds of the gospel. There are elements of truth. Hello and welcome to Theo Now. My name is Andrew Crabtree and I am a Roman Catholic seminarian with the Diocese of Knoxville in Tennessee. Joining me today, I have Dr. William McDonald, uh, and I am extremely grateful that he has agreed to do this. Um, I'm going to tell you all in just a little bit, a little bit of a background between me and Dr. McDonald. And, um, but first, I just want you to introduce yourself. Tell me uh, who you are and what you do. I'm William McDonald, and I'm professor of religion at Tennessee Wesleyan University in Athens, Tennessee. Uh, and this is year 22 of that for me. Oh, wow. And um, live here in Athens, and uh, am also an ordained United Methodist minister, uh, serving a Lutheran church. But I suspect we'll talk more about that later. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, first, I just wanted to say thank you for your ministry, first of all. Um, because it has hugely impacted me. Uh, Tennessee Wesleyan is my alma mater, and um, I took a couple classes with Dr. McDonald. And honestly, one of those classes put me on the path towards where I am today. Um, I'm a Roman Catholic seminarian, as I said, and that all really started from a historical theology course that you gave me. Um, we talked about, um, I, think, I think the biggest thing that impacted me was uh, the formation of Scripture, um, the bringing together of, of the Bible, and talking a little bit about those early um, meetings of, you know, of the faithful to kind of pull together and question doctrine and ideas, um, talking about the early ecumenical councils and how that really blew my mind, because at the time... I was uh, a Christian, sort of non-denominational, charismatic, um, you know, believed what I believed, but never really had a grounding as to what I believed. And so going back through those, uh, the early formation of theology after Christ, the early years, uh, made a huge impact. It, it kind of blew my mind at the time, and I stepped back, and it took me 
close to a decade, maybe a little less than a decade, to really kind of reground myself um, through a lot of prayer, a lot of questioning, a lot of seeking, a lot of all that kind of good stuff. And I really thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. So that that's sort of my early story with you. Um, but how in the world did you become a Methodist minister that serves a Lutheran church? <laughs> well, we could go back to, I guess, my early days. Uh, I'm, I'm a native of Deland, Florida. It's a little town. Uh, we were just talking about how hot an afternoon it is here in Athens, Tennessee, but let me tell you, there is a hotter place, <laughs> and it's called Florida, not hell, but there's that too. Um, no, I grew up in Deland, which is a, a small town, kind of like Athens, it's a college town, and um, grew up in the Methodist church and came from a kind of wall-to-wall -wall Methodist family of parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, everybody was Methodist, that's what I knew. Um, and uh, I uh, had trouble with long division. Okay. <laughs> and um, so in about, in the fifth grade, my parents decided it might be a good idea to enroll me in um, a school where I could get a little bit more individualized attention. And so that was the St. Barnabas Episcopal School in town. And uh, I was, Famil vaguely familiar with that church. It happened to be across the street from um, my home church. Uh, and our Methodist church was, you know, kind of a big, bright, colonial-style sanctuary, um, painted white and, uh, all in the interior. And, and the Episcopal church was kind of small and dark and mysterious and had flickering, you know, six candles on the altar. And, and um, the, the worship service was very different from what I was accustomed to. And of course, that was a part of the education, uh, was uh, weekly chapel. And so I was kind of enthralled by this. I think I was the only kid uh, who was. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, all of this, um, the, the formality uh, seemed to help me um, uh, to, to put together uh, Christianity. Uh, also along about this time, um, I was going through a confirmation class back across the street in my Methodist church and preparing to be confirmed. Um, and meanwhile, um, I had friends down the street from me who were Lutherans and uh, we, they had the largest yard in the neighborhood. And so we all, the whole, the whole um, neighborhood kids after school kind of congregated and in the Pollock's yard for kickball and such. And they're a very nice family, big family, um, seven kids. And uh, so one Sunday they invited me to their church, which was the Lutheran church in town. And I found that church was very much like the Episcopal church in terms of its worship and liturgy. Um, and that made me curious. So I got three churches here um, that uh, I'm acquainted with, and I'm, I'm just in the sixth grade by now, and um, I kind of liked things about all three of them, um, the, the Lutherans, uh, the Episcopalians, uh, and my own home church, the, the Methodist, uh, which I was learning about and being confirmed in. Uh, I had Roman Catholic friends, too, and uh, can recall going to 
St. Peter's Catholic Church in Deland, which was a huge mammoth church, like an airplane hangar, <laughs> big church. Um, and uh, would go there for, for weddings uh, often, uh, folks that we knew. And was, was kind of curious about that and was struck by the enormous crucifix at the, the end of the building over the altar. And uh, had also seen the sound of music uh, numerous times by then. Amen. <laughs> and was starting to kind of put Catholicism also together in my mind. Um, and so often on Sundays, by the time I was in junior high, I guess eighth, ninth, I was um, singing in the choir at my Methodist church, uh, the early service, the youth choir, and then would go downstairs to the fellowship hall, grab a donut and orange juice, and then I'd head across the street to the Episcopal Church, and I'd catch them at about mid-Eucharist, um, about halfway through their service, um, and was welcomed to that altar by uh, Father Dave Sula of blessed memory, who um, listened to me and, and, and never pressured me to be an Episcopalian, but said that I was welcome here. Um, and I learned, it, it was curious to me, because I, I learned this time that John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, actually was a member of that church and, and actually never left it. He was always a priest in, in the Church of England. Right, right. So I thought, this is interesting. How does this stuff fit together? And meanwhile, the Lutherans across town, um, equally friendly and welcoming. And um, the pastor there I, uh, invited me to a conversation once, um, Pastor Zucker. And he gave me a copy of the small cat, Luther Small Catechism and the Augsburg Confession. And I kept those by my bedside <laughs> and read them at night and just think, I, I like this. this. This makes sense to me. This is helping me um, grow in my faith. And so, uh, long story short, uh, I kind of kept those interests uh, going into college. Uh, I went to Lenore Rhine College, which is a a school kind of the size of Tennessee Wesleyan in Hickory, North Carolina, uh, happened to be a Lutheran school. Um, and uh, so I was kind of plunged into, into that and began taking church history, uh, introduction to theology, Bible, all the, these things. And um, so I had a major in religion and a major in English and um, was all along feeling a call to ministry. And of course, the question then for me in college was where? I, I got three churches I'm familiar with, and, and there are things about all three that I, I like. So I kind of had a conundrum on my, my hands and, and cried out to God many a time, you know, which one? Just tell me, point me the way. <laughs> um, Meanwhile, I met and fell in love with a Roman Catholic, mm. um, and she um, uh, was uh, incidentally her her work study was with the chaplain of the Lutheran pastor chaplain to the campus, and um, so she was acquainted in her own way was becoming from her very fervently Catholic background, every bit as fervently Catholic as mine was Methodist. Um, and we met on that kind of Lutheran soil. Anyway, long story short, uh, we married and are happily married to this day, and, and she is still Catholic, and I'm still Methodist. Um, <laughs> I went to, to seminary at Duke, um, 
Go Blue Devils. Oh. And um, <laughs> I uh, uh, had a wonderful experience there. And something that Will Williman said, Will Williman was then the, the dean of the chapel at Duke. He went on to become a bishop in the United Methodist Church. And he, uh, the thing about Williman is there's never an unpublished thought. And he, he's written just a string of book, like a book a week. <laughs> And one thing he said struck me. Uh, he said, a tradition is a gift. And he said, my tradition happens to be United Methodist. And, and that's a gift I've been given. It's not the way I would have put church together if it were all up to me. <laughs> but it's what was given to me. And part of living a tradition, and when we say tradition, we also mean the Bible itself. It's not what I would have invented or created, and thank God it's not. Um, it's been given as a gift, a strange gift. And, and I guess being Methodist has been a strange gift for me because all that liturgy that I got from the Episcopalians and that, that heavy theology from the Lutherans really is not like uh, what Methodism is like, but there, there are other gifts uh, that Methodism has, has brought to me. And so I, I remain Methodist. I, I went to graduate school at Vanderbilt, my PhD in historical theology, to try to, what started in my hometown, just bouncing around to the different churches to see what they were like, I um, made a, a vocation out of it, a calling to, to study uh, theology and historical theology. So I got my PhD at Vanderbilt and, and specialized in the church fathers. I mm -hmm. thought that's really where we all go back, Protestant, Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox to those early centuries. And so I, I studied the baptismal uh, teaching or the catechesis of, of those early fathers. And um, so I uh, prepared for ordination at the same time in the Methodist Church, served my first congregation, actually congregations, mm -hmm. as Methodists often yoke three small churches together mm -hmm. uh, called a circuit. And so I served my first circuit while we were living in Nashville. And um, uh, lo and behold, I came here to Tennessee Wesleyan when the job came open uh, and uh, was wanting to, to teach and do ministry at the same time. Now, to bring this, to kind of wrap this long-winded answer up, but, but to bring it back around to the Lutheran part, so I, I thought, I, I still have a love for, for so many things about Lutheranism and have been taught by that tradition as well, it's kind of like having two or three grandmothers. <laughs> and um, so I got to know the pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church up in Von Orr, Tennessee, just north of Madisonville. Um, and uh, she resigned from the congregation a few years after we moved here, and she gave me a call and said, um, William, I'm leaving uh, St. Paul's, and they have no prospect of having a pastor anytime soon. It's a tiny congregation. They can only have a part-time person. Would you be willing to fill in? Uh, I think we could make arrangements. Even though you're a Methodist, we could do this. So the bishops had to talk to each other yeah. and, and make those arrangements, approve it, and they did. And so I've been, quote, filling in now for almost 20 years. Wow. Um, and, but uh, it's a wonderful congregation full of wonderful uh, souls and that I get the privilege of ministering to. Wow. Um, 
And so there I am. Wow, it's amazing. So you're clearly very ecumenical. Um, in that light, how do you view e- ecclesiology uh, in light of your unique position? Like what, how do you see the church? Mm-hmm. I guess I, I, I say, I can say I'm a Methodist. I'm a Lutherdist is my email. Um, but, um, and I joke around about all that. But I, I guess I, what I say week after week after week is I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Mm-hmm. And that's really the, finally the only church there is. So for me, that's where ecclesiology begins. And Lutheranism and Methodism are expressions or iterations that came up in history for good or ill, and, and there are good and bad things about having denominations. Um, I think our goal uh, ecumenically is, is finally not to have denominations, but, mm. to, but to be one. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's my fervent hope, because the church really is one. Um, and we are imperfectly in communion with each other already through our baptism, um, and that uh, ecumenism is a matter of, of listening to the Spirit. I mean, we don't do it. We, we'll just make more of a mess of it if we try to, to do that. But if the Holy Spirit continues to lead us and guide us, uh, we will come closer to the Spirit and therefore closer to one another. And unity will take care of itself, whether that happens here or hereafter. Wow, yeah. So... Being a professor of religion and the chair uh, now of religion and philosophy here at Tennessee Wesleyan, I'm sure you encounter, speaking of ecumenism, many students who come in from varying different backgrounds, varying different levels of faith. Um, And I'm not sure if it's still the same as it was when I was here, but there were some required low-level, like introduction to Christianity type classes. I'm sure those are still here. Um, What is kind of your philosophy in leading a modern religion philosophy department and encountering those students when they come in? That's a good question because I think it just in, in, in some ways 22 years is seems like a long time but in other ways it's not mm-hmm. and certainly in the big sweep of history studying thousands of years of history um, 22 years is nothing right. but yet it's interesting that that I think I am witnessing some profound shifts, even in that small span of time, Mm -hmm. in this small place. Um, In my early days here, I think there were, it's fair to say there were probably more students on the whole who were familiar with Christianity, not only familiar, but but quite on fire Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, in their faith. and that for them, what they learned in those introductory courses and what they came with were often two very different things. And yeah. that there was, there was much headbutting yeah. in religion classes back in the early days. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's changed. I think that more and more we're seeing students who don't come with exposure to, to Christian, we, we cannot assume things that I think probably I assumed in those early days. Things like, this is the Old Testament and this is the New Testament. Wow. Um, and uh, 
but I, I, I think it's all the more imperative in those classes to spell those things out. And I, I give students this chart of, of uh, kind of church history. It's very vague, very cursory. It's not detailed, but just the kind of early medieval, modern, postmodern kind of time periods and, and major characters, um, most of whom are Catholic, <laughs> like, like Augustine and Aquinas and Anselm and so forth and the Protestant reformers. Uh, and then the, the denominations and how they branched off just so that they can see relationships among Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox. And to know those major, you know, that have no idea who Orthodox are or, or don't know much about Catholicism. And there are lots of um, myths about Catholicism that uh, I think it's imperative to debunk and to get those to stop right here and now. I greatly appreciate that, yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, I, I like to do that. I, I like to, but, but I, I think students are coming more and more with less and less hmm. um, uh, background in the faith. So with that, what are some particular strengths and weaknesses do you find in them in comparison to the past? So they're coming with less, but do they bring anything forward that is maybe a little bit more positive than what you've seen in the past um or not they are coming with with less i think experience on the whole mm -hmm. again there are countless exceptions to that but less less live experience with the church yeah. um i think on a, a positive side um they are in a sense kind of not quite, no one's a perfect blank slate. I don't yeah. want to say that, but but they come with fewer presuppositions, mm -hmm. and so that in some ways can make it easier. Um, so they, whereas I, I would occasionally encounter um, a kind of anti-Catholicism bent, and I thought I know where that's coming from. You've heard somebody tell you somewhere that mm -hmm. Catholics do X, Y, Z, and that's not true. Mm -hmm. Um, now they don't, you know, it's, let's back up. What is a Catholic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where we are now. Yeah. So yeah. in some ways that's a more comfortable place to be. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. So, so in lieu of that, I just want to talk to you about your personal, um, maybe not personal, but some of your ideas of, um, scripture and doctrine because of your ecumenism, your vast ecumenism. I mean, I would, I would, for all the people I've met, you're so in depth, you know, you're in deep with all different varieties of uh, faith traditions. So how do you particularly view scripture, um, especially coming from the Protestant Lutheran side with, you know, very sola scriptura, yet your wife is Catholic and you clearly have a big, um, you know, appreciation of the Catholic faith and the faith tradition from there. How do you view scripture? Mm-hmm. Scripture is, is God's word, um, but it's God's self-communication to us, and it is made most determinative, though, not simply in the words um, themselves, but in the person of Christ. Christ himself is the... Uh, final and unique revelation of, of God, God's Word in the flesh. So I think we, and this is a big Protestant problem, which is bibliolatry, which mm -hmm. is the worship of the Bible. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we don't worship the Bible. The Bible points us to the one to whom we give all worship, which is the Holy Trinity, um, not the Bible. Um, the Bible itself, on the level of its, its words and stories, it, 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 that's the master narrative of, of who we are. We, are. we are, as Christians, engrafted into the story that started with uh, God calling Abram. Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. And so we're written into that story, and it's imperative that we know and, and treasure that story. And part of knowing and treasuring the story of Scripture is to know that it was composed uh, in a time and a place. Uh, words are human, um, and they... Uh, there are stories that are repeated in the Bible in different ways. There are multiple sources for the Bible. Uh, I, I tell students and, and those who teach intro to Bible here in the department uh, regularly tell students that um, Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible. They're written, they're probably from multiple sources that were patched together over many, many years. Uh, the four gospels give us four portraits of Jesus. They're not all identical. Um, and we could go on and on and on. There, the Ten Commandments are given twice. Uh, they are arguably broken down in different ways. <laughs> so um, the Bible is also a human book, and, and that has to be realized. It is, like Christ, human and divine, um, neither simply one nor the other. Um, so God comes to us always in the flesh, always in the flesh sacramental. Mm -hmm. And so the Bible is, is a sacrament, as it were, because God comes to us riding into us, riding into the world uh, on the back of the donkey, let's say, of Scripture, which is the words, the stories, the people, the characters, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, um, and uh, they are imperfect, the stories are. They are uh, some are made of history and some are just story. <laughs> um, what I've just said will put me on prayer lists everywhere, uh, but that's okay. I've, uh, and that's, that's what certainly, going back to the earlier question about kind of teaching in the early days, I encountered that's where the pushback came. Right. <gasps> You're, don't, you can't do that. The, the Bible's God's word. Um, but uh, I think when we when we do what we should do with all texts, which is actually read them and read them carefully, we come to this conclusion. We can't ignore that. Um, and so Luther did talk about sola scriptura. That's true. Um, I think that this is a point at which when you kind of look at Luther in the 16th century and look at Wesley in the um, 18th century, Wesley doesn't talk in that way. Wesley speaks of the primacy of Scripture. Um, in the sen there are senses in which it is sola, um, sole authority, um, but it's an authority that, that fans out then and plays out in the church's tradition, in, um, in human reason even, and, and in our experience, our Christian experience. So... Um, Scripture is a norm, is the way I interpret the sola, but it doesn't mean that I only use the Bible and that I don't have Augustine nearby and Thomas Aquinas and 
Mother Teresa and Martin Luther and all these people that I are traveling with us. So, uh, yeah, um, I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm not a, uh, not a, a, a literalist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sometimes a hard for, for students who do come to us and, and have been schooled in that. That's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. It's tough. Um, but uh, I think that's a necessary step, yeah. and it can be a, a growing experience. So then what, what do you believe salvation is, and how does one come to attain that? And in the same light, you know, who is Jesus and what did he come to do? Mm-hmm. Um, salvation is finally being invited into life with God the communion with the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, salvation is, is realizing that you are the prodigal son or daughter and that you have been welcomed home through no virtue of your own, through no power of your own, through nothing you have to offer. Um, Adam and Eve are, are the prodigal son and daughter, and, and Adam and Eve lives in all of us. And so... That's the master story in a kind of a nutshell, talking about the Bible, is this being invited back home. So salvation is, is an incorporation into Christ. Now, how does that happen? I believe that happens through faith and faith that is nurtured in the church. I don't think Christianity is a solo job. You can go sit in your easy chair and... Uh, or just go up on a mountain and say, um, and it'll come to you. I think it's lived out in community. Um, notice how when Jesus says, love God, and then immediately says, love your neighbor, to, to say that those things are not separable. I, I can't do one and not the other. And so, or, or when, when Jesus and Peter had that conversation after the resurrection, and, you know, Simon, Peter, do you love me? Yes, yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. <laughs> um, and, and uh, three times, in case he didn't get it. So I think that's said to us every day when we wake up, um, is that, uh, that to, to be saved is, is to be living. It's not something that happened in the past. Uh, it can certainly be that. It can certainly be there's that turnaround conversion moment. Um, countless folks have experienced that. I, we, we have our conversion stories. Um, some of us have them over and over and over again. <laughs> and whenever we do turn back as the prodigal son or daughter, we, we are returning to our bab- kind of returning to the waters of baptism that have covered us with that love of God and saying, this starting from scratch, this is where I begin. God embraces me. And then with that, I am empowered to love my neighbor um, and to try to make some difference in the world. I should, you know, should I do good works? Should I do, you know, Protestants like to kind of separate faith and works, and I think we need to listen more carefully to our, our Catholic brothers and sisters who say, well, they, they, you know, they go together. There's not, you know, one's not without the other. Uh, if you have faith, if, you, if it really is faith, you'll be, good works will come forth spontaneously. <laughs> um, you don't have to ask, you know, should I do that or not? You, you do it. <laughs> it become, you've been turned inside out. Um, so long way around to say that, that salvation is that incorporation into Christ, but it's also then 
at the same time, loving the neighbor. Um, and it, you, wait, you asked also who is who is Jesus? Yeah. So, um, yeah, Christ, uh, fully human and fully divine, which is a mystery. There's no way there are all these attempts back in the early church to you know how human and how divine and how do they fit together and but finally it, it's it's a mystery. We we're encountered by Christ and um, it's not that we go back to you know try to go back and recreate um, you know wear sandals and, and walk the dusty streets of Galilee and all of that. Um, it's rather Christ comes to us um, and, and shapes and forms us. And I, I think about um, Soren Kierkegaard, philosopher, said, talked about contemporaneity with Christ. I mean, how, do, how are you, how is Christ sitting next to you in the here and now today? In my little church, um, at least before the COVID struck, um, we have communion virtually every Sunday. And it's a small congregation. And, and so they, they come forward after the great Thanksgiving and they, they stand around in a circle. And I go around as their pastor and administer, and say, the body of Christ given for you, the body of Christ given for you. And someone follows with a cup. That's how Christ gets to us. That's how Christ is contemporary with us. Um, it's not that, that we are somehow transported to the past. It's not when we have the Lord's Supper that we're recreating some historical event. It's the other way around. The movement is Christ is coming to us and meeting. He said, I'll meet you here. <laughs> That's in effect what the sacraments are. Uh, this is my body, this is my blood. This is where I'm gonna meet you. Uh, I will show up here. And you can, um, you can bet on that. Um, no matter what state you're in, I'm going to be there for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. So that knowing Christ is closely tied to me to that sacramental experience. Mm -hmm. So um, I also, correct me if I'm wrong, are you also the Associate Dean of Humanities and Fine Arts here as well? They told me to do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, hopefully you'll have a, an answer to this question. Um, I just want to kind of broaden it out a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I think in today's world, we see a lot of focus and heavy push um, in the STEM aspect the, of, of education, the utilitarian aspect of education. Um, and I just wanted to see if you had really what you had to say about the importance of the humanities, fine arts, a liberal arts education. Yeah. Um, I think that there is transforming power available in the liberal arts, whether that's literature, music, art, philosophy, history, religion, um, uh, whether it's a, an Emily Dickinson poem um, or, you know, a piece of music or, or whatever it may be. Uh, it, in my experience, it, it set me alive. Um, and every time colleges go through something called, we, we have a gen ed uh, or, or general education 
courses that everyone takes, and they're largely humanities courses. And students will often say, you know, during advising, why do I have to take this? Why do I, I can't I just, I'm here to major in accounting. Can't I just get on to that? And I say, no, we want you to read Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, we want you to, to sing in the choir or, 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 you know, we want you to experience these things because they will change your life. And I really believe that they do. Um, I were talking about conversion in a narrow sense, we were talking about earlier, is a kind of conversion in the broad sense to, to being fully human. And I hope that education can contribute, or the education we provide at a place like Tennessee Wesleyan can, can, can uh, foster that, that transformation. And it makes you, humanities make you more humanistic. I, I tell students, that's fine if you want to be an accountant, and nothing, nothing against that. We need good accountants, and we need nurses, and we need uh, folks who have specific training in uh, fields that are, are clearly related to a job. And I know folks make the joke about, well, you know, what is there? What can I do with a humanities degree? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I understand that where that where that comes from, but it doesn't mean that you can't major in the humanities um, and still get to one of those jobs or that you could double major. Um, it takes a little more work, a little more time, but it's well worth it. Some majors and jobs uh, teach you how to earn a living. The humanities teach you how to make a life. Mm. And I think that's imperative that we do that. I agree to that 100%. In the same vein, how do you see philosophy in relation to religion? Uh, I know the Catholic Church is very heavy on faith and reason and, and, and taking that history, especially with St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, taking that history of you know, Greek philosophy and, and showing how it makes the Christian faith come alive even more than, um, yeah. than Scripture, or with Scripture, how it makes it continue to come alive even more for us. Uh, how do you approach the idea of philosophy um, and religion together. Mm -hmm. um, I do think they go together too. Um, and we, we lose reason to our own peril. <laughs> we found over and over and over again. And I, I think that um, it's, uh, especially in this day and age, we desperately need reason and reasoned arguments. Um, yeah, there's so much just uh, the, the what most folks see is not philosophy. Um, I wish they did see Plato and Aristotle, but they, they see politics on TV um, in the media constantly, and it's just so much mudslinging. There's no argument there. It, it's just trash-talking each other. And what ought to be going on, what Aristotle and Plato and so many others taught us is that we want to make reasoned arguments about what's good and, and what goods we ought to share in common and, and why. And I don't hear any of that or very little of that in the, the media today. So I think um, I think I could make a case that everyone should minor in philosophy. Amen. <laughs> I completely agree 100%. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and because that's reason and, and reasonable, um, God is present there. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. Well, uh, now I'd like to transition a little bit. We've talked a lot about 
um, what you do here, your idea, your philosophy of, of leading a religion and philosophy department here at Tennessee Wesleyan. I want to talk a little bit, I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, you brought it up, but a little bit more about your personal life. You said you're from DeLand, Florida, uh, which I didn't know that. <laughs> I hope you don't like the Gators, but uh, <laughs> go Vols. But um, so while you were growing up, you said you were very ardently Methodist. Was your family the same? I mean, your father and your mother, were they both church-going folk? Were they both faithful? Uh, how did your, how did your, um, your early life uh, and your family and your immediate family surrounding you, how did it kind of help foster you in the direction um, that your life took? Hmm. Um, my, my mother and I, uh, my, well, I was, first of all, I guess, back up, and I was the third child of three, and my brother and sister were um, older than me, my brother about nine years ahead of me, so uh, when he was um, going off to college, I was in about the second, third grade, I think, and was delighted to, to be able to take over his bedroom, <laughs> which is a little larger than mine, um, but... Um, I remember my mom and I went to church primarily together. Um, my dad was a Methodist as well and um, uh, a believer and um, especially uh, expressed that in, in his later years. But I can remember kind of in, in my sort of elementary, junior high, high school years that, that dad uh, worked. My dad was a workaholic. And um, Sunday, he, he took that day of rest thing really seriously. <laughs> and so oftentimes, he, he wasn't necessarily at church with us mm -hmm. in, in person, um, but uh, uh, he was in other ways and, and it, it demonstrated his faith uh, in his closing years in some extraordinary ways. Mm -hmm. My grandparents uh, were ardently, on both sides, ardently Methodist and uh, always at, at, at church. Um, and my, my grandfather uh, lived out his faith um, with a particular concern for social justice. Uh, and these were things that I, I can remember learning kind of later on. Uh, he didn't make a big deal about that, didn't, didn't um, boast about it, but... Uh, uh, was um, instrumental in, in integration in DeLand, Florida, uh, and in uh, overcoming um, redlining or, or efforts to, to uh, keep um, African-American folk from neighborhoods um, by denying them loans. Uh, people would do that. Banks would, would do things like that. And so my grandfather set up a loan um, a program called Helping Hands uh, so that African-American families could uh, get um, low interest or interest-free loans mm. uh, to, to purchase homes and That's so awesome. make integration actually happen. Um, he got a cross burned in his yard for that. Wow. My grandparents did. Um, and so I've always remembered, you know, that, that if you stick your neck out, uh, in loving your neighbor, as Christ told us, you, you, you better look good on wood, <laughs> as it's been said. Yeah, wow. 
And, and I think that, so, that social justice, that social, John Wesley said something one time, there is no holiness but social holiness. You know, there's, there's no, you can't be holy off by yourself. It's, it's serving your neighbor. And so uh, that's been an inspiration to me. Mm. Yeah, wow. So as your journey with Christ kind of continued in, um, in high school, I, a lot of people that I've talked to, especially I can speak from my own experience, there's sort of a shift. You know, your hormones are, are you're, in, you're starting to, you know, between high school and college, you start um, learning about a lot of new things. You start getting impacted by different ideologies and um, ideas and philosophies and da-da-da-da-da. And typically you also want to individuate yourself away from your parents and your family. Was there ever a time maybe in high school, maybe in college, where you sort of wandered away from Christ? Um, maybe not intentionally, but sort of, um, I don't know, did the typical high school thing. Like, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to do any of this stuff. God's not real. Was there any moment like that for you? Hmm. If not, you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... Give a kind of twist on that. It's an interesting question. It's a good question. Um, and say that I can't think of one offhand, and maybe there should have been. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, when, by the time I was in high school, I mean, good grief, I, like I said, I was singing in the choir at the early service, and then uh, after sneaking over to the Episcopal Church for communion, you know, I'd come back, we'd have Sunday school, I'd, I'd come, you know, Sunday night to youth group, and I was involved in the, you know, the youth group, and every youth trip, and this and that and the other, I mean, I was, when the doors were open, I was there. Um, and then uh, in college, I was involved in, you know, in chapel, and campus, and campus ministry, and maybe there, in retrospect, there probably should have been some time, sometimes there is great value in stepping away. Um, and in saying, you know, I'm going to worship at St. Mattress this Sunday morning. <laughs> I'm going to see what their service is yeah. like. <laughs> wow. um, but there, there can be folks have, who are able to, to kind of look back. I think that's St. Augustine's experience in the confessions yeah, and exactly. um, to, to step away. Um, or, or to know a kind of life on the other side mm -hmm. um, and then to come back and to, to embrace the gift that is the church um, and Christ uh, in, in a fresh and new, new way. Mm -hmm. And no, nah, I, I wish I, I kind of wish I had done that. Wow. <laughs> I don't recommend it. No, it's not, it's not a, a great feeling. But in all your great, wonderful holiness and perfection throughout your young life that you clearly led... Uh, when did you decide, or when did you make the, the purposeful decision to start heading towards a ministry? Hmm. It came on, um, gosh, as early as probably the fifth or sixth grade. Um, I saw myself in that role and, and liked it. And... Um, but then, as I, I get, maybe this does kind of go back to that previous question, I, I entertain doubts about it. You know, do you really want to do that? <laughs> and oftentimes, when I would say that to people about you know, going into the ministry, 
I would be confronted with, are you sure? Um, you know what that's all about? And, and I can remember thinking, you know, maybe I do need to think about this a little more. And um, I, even pastors would you know, tell me, you know, that phone rings at 2 a.m. and you got to get out of bed and go down to the hospital and somebody's been in a motorcycle accident. And, and then I thought, I don't know what I would say. I mean, it's easy to imagine doing liturgy and sacraments, and that's all the, the, the beautiful side of it or teaching. But, you know, what about when people are in deepest need and tragedy? And at that point, I re really felt kind of inadequate and thought, I'm not sure I'm really ready for the grittier side of ministry. And so that, then I started to, to think, maybe, maybe I could be a lawyer. <laughs> I had no interest in that at all, none whatsoever. Um, that was a, that was folly to even think about that. Um, and I, I you know, threw other things in the path that you know besides ministry and in the end uh, ministry always won so yeah <laughs> so when you um you said you went to duke for seminary is that correct what yeah. what was that like what i know that um you know i know my experience of the catholic seminary and how it's run what what really stood out to you during that time what were some of your favorite classes professors what mm -hmm. did that uh, that experience of seminary if you bring? So I was at Duke in about 1989, 90, 91, and um, I, this is another kind of side to that, throwing up kind of roadblocks to the sense of vocation. I enrolled in the MDiv program, which is the degree with which you prepare for ordination, but when I got there, I, I quickly changed it to the MTS, or Master of Theological Studies, which is a two-year program, and it doesn't include the pastoral care classes, and because and I was going to kind of declare that I'm just going to get the PhD and go teach somewhere and just not do the ministry side. Well, again, <laughs> I, I long story short, I got over to Vanderbilt, and um, I said, something is missing. I, there is something missing. So I, I I went and kind of surrendered myself to the church and, and to the United Methodist uh, Conference Board of Ordained Ministry and said, um, uh, I, I can't run away from this anymore. I, I'm got, you know, so if you will have me. <laughs> and, but anyway, back to Duke. So I was there just two years. Um, in some ways, it was a wonderful experience in terms of the intellectual stimulation and the community, um, the worship there. Uh, some of the best theologians in the world, arguably, were, were there. Uh, a few of them that I got to, to at whose feet I got to sit. Um, uh, I remember Dr. Steinmetz, who taught um, medieval and Reformation history and um, his uh, stirring lectures where he would uh, kind of become uh, who he was talking about in history. Um, I remember Stanley Hauerwas, who is a, a controversial um, but fascinating thinker uh, who, who says things like, the, the first job of the church is to be the church, 
not to try to, to be something else to, uh, in the world, but to, to be the church. And, and that challenged me and has shaped me um, in, in my thinking. Um, I mentioned Will Williman earlier, uh, who was the dean of the chapel. And, and there are many others uh, who were um, stimulating. The, the recently deceased uh, Jeffrey Wainwright, I should mention, who was an ecumen, a Methodist ecumenist. Um, uh, the, I, I don't know if it's true. It probably is, though. Uh, he was friends with um, Pope Benedict, uh, and that they, they called one another and consulted over the phone about theological matters both ways. <laughs> I could believe it. Um, he, was, he was a wonderful um, professor. So um, I had a good experience there. Um, I might be asked, did, did I go to any basketball games? Yes. <laughs> did I ever camp out to get into the basketball stadium? I didn't go that far. Um, my, my father-in-law, Bob Canfield, uh, was kind enough to, to get us tickets, uh, to Duke games. And so for Christmas, and so after Christmas, a couple days after Christmas, we go to a game. Um, and for that, I'm, I'm forever grateful. Um, in some ways it was a, there was a loneliness though too in seminary. And I say that not that I wasn't around people or made friends, but that uh, I had a, a good experience in college and um, developed abiding friendships. Uh, but once you leave, uh, once you graduate, uh, life is never the same, as you know. And, and I experienced that, that transition um, in a way that, that, that left me longing for, for the old days a lot of times. I had to kind of catch myself. Now is time for seminary. Now is time to, to, to be focused here. Um, by that time, Carolyn, my wife now, um, we were dating, and she was in Hickory, uh, where Lenorine is, which is, was three and a half hours away across North Carolina. I was in eastern North Carolina in Duke, so we didn't see each other as much. That was hard. So there were things about those years that were, were difficult as well as rewarding. Wow. So when you finally, um, after you finished graduate school, after you finished your PhD and you were going into your first circuit, how was that transition for you into, was that, I'm assuming that was your first pastor? Yeah. The first time as pastor. Um, yeah. what, what was that like for you? Was coming from seminary, coming from academic study, heavy academic study, and walking into a place where you had to get into the nitty-gritty with people, what was that transition like for you? What were some of the struggles or some of the uh, beautiful things that you saw come out of that? Yeah. Um, I was uh, struck by that contrast and, and expected it going into it. Um, you know, one day I could be in the uh, the Vanderbilt Library, you know, looking up something and um, just happy as a pig in slop. <laughs> and then the next day, you know, I'm out uh, in Stewart County, Tennessee, which is if uh, Tennessee geography. Uh, this would be where land between the lakes is. It's uh, west of Clarksville, uh, almost to the Kentucky border. Uh, at the Indian Mound. Uh, charge is what it was. Three little churches in and around Indian Mound, Tennessee. Um, and so I, I would drive up there 
and on Sunday and um, enter a different world, a very different world. And I think the the, the thing to do is, is to, you know, how do I take all this learning that I've been given as a gift? And it's a, it's a privilege to be able to do that, just to acknowledge that, that I've been given this gift of being able to sit and read and think and, and with, with folks. And now to go to folks who have been farming tobacco all week, uh, working in a factory, um, taking care of a sick elderly parent, uh, dealing with death, um, and so on and so forth. Everything that the parish brings, how do I bring that to bear? And, and how do I communicate uh, to those folk and, and love those folk as a pastor should? And um, that was a learning curve. Um, but those folks were very, very gracious <laughs> and forgiving and loving. God bless the Indian Mound United Methodist Charge, Wiley's Chapel, Hopewell, and Indian Mound. Uh, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> um, but I, I, they, they embraced us, uh, Carolyn and I, and, and loved us and uh, were able to, to teach me some things um, and um, I am forever grateful to, to God meeting me there in, in, in Indian Mound um, I've always, I've, I love the small church I guess to, to talk about one of the beautiful things that kind of comes out of that is I really do feel I have a heart and a sense of call to the small congregation um, which is probably all I will ever serve and I like it that way um, the small fellowship, my current church, uh, it reminds me in some ways of, of one of the Indian Mound churches because it, it, we have about 25 active members. And that's a different, sometimes it's called a family church. Not necessarily that it's all one family, but they are like a family and they function like a family. Um, in a larger church, you might have a committee that figures out you know, how they're going to get the toilet paper in the bathrooms. But in a family church, somebody just goes out when they're at the grocery store and picks up toilet paper. So I'll go down to the church this week and empty the trash cans and sweep out and put some toilet paper in. That's how it works. And, the, and that's the, the kind of the beauty of it. Um, and everyone knows everybody and, and there's no excuse for, for being distanced from, from anyone. Um, so I have, a, I think what came out of those Indian Mound years was that, that sense of, of call to be there. And, and also, practically, since my calling is kind of double to, to the academy uh, and the church, this is a way that I can serve in both. So while you're here at Wesleyan, your position has kind of changed and evolved over time. Uh, tell me about that. Where did you start out? How did you start out? Did you start out as adjunct? Because now you're chair of the department. When I was here, you were the chaplain. Um, tell me about that growth and uh, that transformation that's taking place. So I came um, as a double dip job itself, was, was both chaplain and, and um, religion professor and instructor, really. So I, I taught those early days, I think just two classes, 
fall and spring, and then it increased to three after a year or two. And, and then the rest of the time I was to be the chaplain, which, which meant that I would do, uh, conduct the weekly chapel services, um, be present on campus, uh, present to students and faculty. And um, kind of after that, it was, well, you, you, whatever you make of it. <laughs> and, and so I thought, what, what should I make of it? And so I guess it wasn't until maybe four or five years in that I thought maybe if we had an alternative spring break program. And so I, I did that every other year. Uh, and we went to Costa Rica, and um, uh, we did an Appalachian one. We, did, we went to the Bahamas and did various places uh, for that kind of experience. And um, campus ministry is a different animal from parish ministry, too. It, and there's a sense in which this is a parish. It, it's a congregation. Um, but... Uh, it's a different kind of congregation because it changes every four years. You, you lose a fourth of the population and, and a, a new fourth comes in. And the other thing that's different is that everybody stays the same age and you get older. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um, it's a different dynamic uh, in that way. And, and so you have to find ways to, to be present um, to students and also in, in my situation, to bow, to wear two hats at once. And, and in some institutions, the, the chaplain is exclusively the chaplain and does not teach. And I, I see that there are advantages to that. Um, but being in the classroom gave me a chance to be among students in a, in a different way. But I, I had to be a professor too. And so I thought, it's kind of like in the Bible, where you've, God speaks in law and gospel. God makes commands, but also gives us promises. And so in a classroom, i very aware that I'm the chaplain and that students know that. You know, a student may run into trouble, and sometimes an F, the grade of F, has to be given. That's just the way it works. <laughs> and as the chaplain, I can't compromise the integrity of, of grading in that way. So it, I kind of thought, well, I guess with, with one hand, I might have to say, you failed the class. Uh, but with the other, God loves you anyway. <laughs> How do I, sometimes balancing the role is difficult uh, in that way. Um, so when I, uh, I worked in those early days, as, as you remember, with um, Sam Roberts, mm -hmm. who was the chair of the religion department. Um, and I learned so much from Sam, and he became such a good friend um, to me, and uh, appreciate Sam and Stella Roberts both uh, immensely. And um, Sam, too, had been a, the chaplain in, when he first came here, uh, so I, the history was kind of repeating itself. I stayed in that kind of double-dip position for 15 years. It was a A matter in those kind of early days of chaplaincy as I sort of found my way about how, how to do this and how to do it here. I, had, I, I came with ideas about how it ought to be done. Um, one of my role models and heroes was my own college chaplain back at Lenore Rhine, um, 
uh, Don Just, who uh, Pastor Don Just, who who recently died, blessed memory. And I, I kind of wanted to do things like um, Pastor Just did, <laughs> but that was Lenore Ryan, you know, 25 or so years ago, um, and this is Tennessee Wesleyan today, and they're not not the same context. And so I, I had to kind of disabuse myself of of that and and learn to listen to the voice of Christ in, in students. And sometimes it came as a plea. And can you hear what this student is trying to say uh, when he or she comes by your office and wants to talk about something? And I, I learned the difference between, and, and uh, you probably encountered this too in, in pastoral care classes, the presenting problem you know, they, they come with some issue, but there's really, you peel away and there's something else, a deeper issue behind that. And to, sometimes getting to that is is where we needed to go in, in conversations. I'm not sure I always got there um, in my conversations with students, but but I learned to listen more carefully from, you do that in the parish too, but, but to do that in, in a campus where students are going through the kinds of things that 18 to 21 year olds, the traditional age, are going through. It requires a special kind of hearing. You know, is this a roommate issue or is this a deeper issue about uh, vocation? Oftentimes conversations uh, have come around vocation and sometimes it's not even a student coming to me as the chaplain but, but as an advisor. And, and so I, I always got the undecided students um, because we did, had so few religion majors and, and they thought, well, just give them to the chaplain and, you know, he'll, he'll take care of them. Um, and, and so I would, would talk to students oftentimes about vocation. You know, I don't know what to major in. I don't know what. And I um, tried to think back and to use it as a, my own history as a kind of resource of... Um, understanding that yeah i i was there too in a way um our, we might be a little bit different on some scores but but i too experienced some uncertainty um so it was a i guess to sum it up a matter of learning to listen more closely that's beautiful well now i want to end our conversation with what i've called the trinity of questions i've <laughs> asked these same questions uh, to everyone that I've interviewed and everyone that I will be interviewing, that's the plan. <laughs> um, one is sort of about philosophy, theology. One is more personal to you. Um, and then we'll talk about the third one when we get there. So the first question is, who and what is God? It's a very broad question, but it's not something that you hear a lot from the pulpit. Um, you talk about God. You talk, there's a lot of talk about Christ and what he's done, but who and what is God? Mm-hmm. Hmm. The one who is. Great answer, yeah. I am who I am up there on that mountaintop. Um, And um, uh, I think St. Thomas Aquinas would agree. um, The... uh, the ultimate being, being itself. Uh, all other beings, including us, are are 
but partial and and are cannot be explained apart from God. Um, and I think that's a really kind of a foundation for faith. Um, is that uh, um, God is that than which a greater cannot be thought, <laughs> um, and God is that than apart from which uh, reality is not. So, yeah. Thank you. I know that's a tough question, <laughs> but I think, like you said, it's a foundation um, to everything, and, and I think that needs to be heard, so thank you for that. Second question is a lot more personal. Um, what is God doing in your life right now? Mm. What's the Holy Spirit you know, putting on your heart? Um, this can be you, know, you personally or what you're thinking about for your next um, homily or message for your congregation or what you're telling, you're preparing to tell the students coming forward, but what is God and the Holy Spirit talking to you about right now? Hmm. Well, I think the Spirit's telling me in some way every day um, to listen more. <laughs> um, and I'm, I do sense that a lot now. I'm, um, I'm 52, and so I'm, I'm at middle age. And um, this age kind of has its own, just like 18 to 21, the traditional college age, it, it has its own characteristics. And, and I think God speaks in, to us in, in particular ways. Um, I read a book a few years back by uh, Richard Rohr about, um, I, the, I can't think of the title of it, but it's about the two halves of life. And kind of the, the younger, the idea was that being younger, uh, you, you, you kind of are looking to cross your T's and dot your I's and get the job and do what needs to be done. But then when you get to kind of the second half of life, which I, I guess that's what this is, <laughs> um, I'm, there's a kind of freedom, he, he said. And I thought, okay, I really hadn't thought of it that way, but, but the, the, there's, a, there's a sense in which um, things that are a little bit less important begin to drop away and you begin to recognize them more, what those less important things are and the things that, that are more important come into focus. And I don't like to think that that means it's because I'm going to die soon. <laughs> that, okay, what, what do you need to, you know, I don't think that's, I hope that's not the point. But, but it's that life does kind of take on a bit different cast at this point. And so I think the Spirit is, is pointing me in the direction of those things that are important. And in my younger incarnation, I guess I, you know, I, it was learning to be the professor and, and the, the chaplain, and as we've talked about, the, the parish pastor, and in, in the academic, the, um, working on some scholarship and writing and publishing and stuff like that. And that's all the dotting the uh, I's and crossing the T's, and all that's worth doing and, and it should be done well. And that's, that's, we're called to those things, but sometimes in the process, um, it's the some of those more essential things get lost, um, like relationships, um, simple conversations. That's something that I really appreciate from Sam Roberts, um, is 
that uh, he would get his guitar out in the afternoon up in the religion department, just start playing and, and, and talking and telling stories about Tennessee Wesleyan from years ago. And, um, and uh, I thought it's what well, that's, this is about kibbutzing, relating, sitting in like, we Southerners do on the front porch in rocking chairs and just talking and, and experiencing God's presence in the midst of that. And so now that I'm in middle age, I, I see that importance more and more. And I hope I can recognize that um, and be more mindful of, of what's right in front of me and not be racing ahead to the next thing I've got to do or tomorrow or whatever, but, but the here and the now. So I think that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> this last question, um, I just want, I call it my selfish question. Uh, there was several years ago, uh, it was me, you, and Sam Roberts, and we went to the Country Patch to eat. <laughs> and it was a time in my life, uh, briefly after I'd, fin- I'd graduated here, and we talked about, um, I had considered wanting to become a theology professor, wanting to go to school to do that. And... Um, I asked both of you to meet me, to talk to me about that, and both of you gave me some very, very wise advice, which led me here, is basically there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of colleges that are looking for theology professors as much anymore, but what you probably should do is find a denomination that you like, become ordained, and then work towards it, work towards that in another way, and I thought that was great advice, and that sent me rolling here into the Catholic faith and now into doing what I'm doing now, not necessarily looking to become a professor in the future per se, but whatever the Lord has for me. But that was a great, op- that was a, a great opportunity for me to get your advice. And I want to do that again now. So my selfish question is, as I'm working to become a pastor, as I'm working to get down and dirty, like we've been talking about with the people, what advice do you have for me moving into that position? Mm, wow. Hmm. Um, I guess several things that I've picked up along the way come to mind. Um, going back to, to what uh, the Lord told Peter, uh, he tells all of us, um, especially those of us in, in ordained ministry, feed my sheep. Uh, they're hungry people. And, and your parish is your, your little acre <laughs> that you've been given to shepherd for uh, however long the bishop has you there. And, um, and, and there are deep hungers. Uh, and so on the one hand, there is that. I think that that realization of that um, we hear a lot these days about, um, well, religion's kind of waning and, and all this, and, and I'm not so sure that's true. I think that there is what's being exposed is a deep hunger for life with God. And so uh, I think the realization that that's there, uh, number one. Number two, that, that God's grace and graciousness equips us uh, beyond what we have we show up and we got five loaves and two fish and that's it (laughs) but god we know does extraordinary things with with that 
And so it's, it's finally not about us. Um, it's, it's, it's Christ's ministry um, to these folks. And, and with that in mind, kind of to number three, um, to recognize our own finitude and limitations. Um, you c- congregations can also kill you. <laughs> um, they can be a joy and a delight, but, but they can also kill you, uh, and particularly pastors who, who might think they have all the answers and that forget that they too are uh, traveling this journey with the people, not, not over them, not under them, not behind them, not in front of them, but with them, traveling with the people. That's the image that I've, I've had to remember a lot. And, and that um, I can point toward um, uh, the one who does know, but sometimes I have to point to myself and say, I, I just don't. I'm not sure. Or, or I, uh, I'm limited, too. Uh, and so, um, yeah, recognition of, of our finitude. Well, thank you so much, Reverend Dr. William McDonald of Tennessee Wesleyan College, Tennessee Wesleyan University now, excuse me. I thank you so much for being with me and taking the time uh, to spend and have this conversation. And uh, your answers have been fantastic. So thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure, Drew. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, thank you for listening to Theo Now. Thank you.